0: And that was Audra McDonald starting us off on The Living Writer Show this afternoon. You've got WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today, and we're taping January 30th, 2020. And our guest today is Jose Antonio Vargas. Hello.
1: Hi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. Uh, Jose is author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, uh, which came out in 2018. Yeah.
1: September 2018.
0: Um, and yep. you're here in Ann Arbor because you are part of the Ann Arbor Ypsilanti Reads program. Yes.
1: Right? <laughs> so a bunch of residents have been tagging me on Instagram.
0: Oh, amazing. <laughs> I guess
1: that's how people read books now. On it's Instagram. Instagram, Yeah. Bookstagram. It's actually great. It's like, <laughs> I get random questions and like, it's pretty cool. That's
0: interesting. Yeah. I didn't
1: yeah. talk about that. More than Twitter, but more than Facebook, it's Instagram.
0: People are obsessed with Instagram now. That's I think the it's the
1: safest place for people. Yeah. I like think it's safer than Twitter, definitely safer than Twitter, but yeah.
0: Twitter is terrifying. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, for those of our listeners who aren't yet familiar with our work, who have not tagged you on Instagram yet, um, <laughs> I wanted to just uh, read your bio here from the back of your beautiful yellow book. Um, it's a gorgeous cover, by the way. You know, oh, your publisher did an awesome I, th-
1: job. Thankfully, they went with my idea. They had this... Idea of doing, like, a red, white, and blue. Ooh. I know. And I was like, I think I just want to use my handwriting.
0: Is it your handwriting? That's my
1: handwriting. And I literally was staying at an Airbnb where I finished the book uh-huh. and just got a piece of white paper with, like, a bad, um, you know, like, one of those big Flat felt- tip kind yeah. of marker. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. marker, and just wrote it.
0: It's funny. My ten year old saw this and asked me if it was your handwriting and I said, Oh no, it's probably the book designer like <laughs> no. I, I answered for you but um but She that's... also wondered if it's your fingerprint.
1: No. So that was a step too far oh, for okay. the lawyers. The lawyers were like, <laughs> I want it to be a fingerprint just to like really say Come get me,
0: uh-huh. but my
1: lawyers are like Jose. No, please don't put your you finger title the, in the book. Cover come of get me. I'm
0: yes. going to read your bio for the book, which is not called "Come Get Me." It's called <laughs> "Dear America: Notes of an Undocumented Citizen." Jose Antonio Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, and Tony-nominated producer. His work has appeared internationally in Time Magazine, as well as the San Francisco Chronicle, the New Yorker, and the Washington Post. In 2014, he received the Freedom to Write Award from the Penn Center USA. A leading voice for the human rights of immigrants, he founded the nonprofit media and culture organization Define American, named one of the most innovative companies by Fast Company. An elementary school was named after him and opened in Mountain View, California in 2019. Congratulations on that, on all of this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the elementary school thing. We added that for the paperback, and because I don't think that was finalized when the hardcover came out.
0: That is such a powerful statement on yeah.
1: and they still. You you know, you know what I've noticed since it happened. Like I I've, I've stopped cursing as much. Because I can because elementary imagine schoolers. the kids, <laughs> you know, they're like from <laughs> kindergarten to fourth grade, like or fifth grade, and you know, and I have a potty mouth. I used to be, <laughs> I used to cover cops, you know, in Philadelphia Daily News, and, <laughs> aliens, and
2: uh-huh.
1: you know, because I hang out with cops, I just learn how to cuss a lot, mm-hmm. and I, I've been cussing a lot less in the past few months. <laughs> That's the one
0: tangible change. Yeah, I've
1: been saying fudge. <laughs> Fudge a lot. So yeah.
0: You can also say sugar on this show. This is an FCC regulated show. <laughs> oh, oh, great. But you may, Thank you for telling um, me that. Yes. yes. Reminder. <laughs> Correct. Jose, um, like, can you sort of introduce the book for us, for listeners yeah. who haven't read it?
1: Well, so I publicly declared my undocumented status, what some people call illegal alien status, uh, in 2011 for the New York Times magazine. And so that was like a long, you know, 5,000 word personal essay. Um, And since then, you know, they're like, hey, you should really make this a book. And I just resisted it because I think I come from such a, I've been, I'm a journalist by training and I come from this world where I, me, and my are the most dangerous words. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be. You know, unless you're Susan Orlean <laughs> writing for The New Yorker <laughs> and you can like slip in the I, me, and my there once in a while as you're reporting it. Um, I just didn't think I should be doing that. And I wasn't comfortable doing that. So then Trump got elected. <laughs> mm-hmm. Trump was elected in 2016 and I was living in, in Los Angeles at this apartment. And the building manager said, hey, um, you know, who's been very supportive of me whenever he saw me on Fox News or MSNBC, he'd always like, hey – I believe in what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. Then he texted me and said, "Um, if I showed up, we're not sure what we could do, what we would do to protect you. So you may want to move out of the building and find a new place.
0: He proactively. He
1: proactively. Because, you know, this was like, this was the time when, you know, undocumented people were afraid to get on flights. We were hearing people were being, you know, right after the election. Right after the election, people were like being asked for IDs, writing Amtrak. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, kind of pandemonium. Everybody was panicked. Mm -hmm. And everybody around me was panicked. Like, my friends have a lot of lawyer friends. I've collected them for the past (laughs) decade now. um, Are like, hey, California's big enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should not be flying anymore domestically because every uh-huh. time you fly, you have to present an ID. You might get, you know,
0: whatever. It increases
1: your chances It increases chances the answer. chances of. So then I felt like it's one thing to, as an undocumented person to not be able to leave the country, which I have not been able to do since I was 12. So 20, when you arrived here. When I arrived here. So 27 years. It's a whole other thing to say that I can't go to New York or I can't go to, New, you know, uh, If I can't go to New Orleans or Miami, which to me are like the most foreign I get in this country. (laughs) Like whenever (laughs) I feel like I need to go to like a foreign place, I go to Miami. Right? Everybody speaks Spanish. You know, all that. Um, So that was when the book started in my head. Like, okay, now I think I'm ready to write this book. But the book that I had in my head is very different from what this ended up being about. I wanted to write – more of a manifesto. I wanted, actually, the original title was Why I'm Here was the original title. Huh. And to do kind of a migrant manifesto. And, you know, because to me, the questions that do not get interrogated, why are people coming? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, what does U.S. foreign policy and economic trade agreements have to do with people coming? Um, kind of these Bigger questions that cable news and their thirty minutes, you know, sound bites don't have any room for.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, of course, the book ended up being totally
0: different. Well, it's something that. else. Yeah, it's entirely. Something, yeah, and, you know,
1: some, a few people have mentioned, and I, I have. I, I try not to. Read, I've made documentaries, and I, I, I tried not to read reviews because if you read any good ones, then you have to find bad ones to balance it out. <laughs> So but people have been telling me that the book is not one thing. It's like one one teacher cuz the best part is a lot of uh college professors teaching it. So it's being taught in history classes because they're like you packed a lot of US history, a lot of just history in the book. And for me that's actually a compliment because I wanted it to be. That's why it's notes, you know. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I started writing this when I was 37? Mm-hmm. I don't think a 37 year old should be writing a memoir. I just didn't think, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah. Toni Morrison didn't publish The Blue Eye* Hats and she was 39. You know? Yeah. So, I just yeah. didn't think a 37 year old should be writing like a chronological this memoir. Is, uh, yes. So, for me, this is really, it is notes, right? Like, it is kind of like because there are some chapters that are literally two pages long and I, I wanted to kind of play with format and I mm-hmm. wanted to First of all, I wanted to make sense of why I was so depressed. (laughs) So for me, the book is that. It's like I've never gotten therapy before. Um, I'm contemplating that now because I live mm-hmm. in Berkeley and I'm surrounded by a bunch of therapists. Um, the therapy is fairly
0: easy to obtain in the Bay, Bay Area. Very, right? very easy you to got, obtain. Yeah.
1: I have like my, you know, I can, I'm sure I can find a gay Filipino therapist easily. I
0: think you can. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, I have confidence in
1: that. Yeah. So uh, this, the book is the closest I've gotten to kind of therapy. Right. Yeah. And this, very intimate conversation. I didn't really know myself until I finished this book. I didn't know that I was... I had recently had to reread it because there were some correct... There were some little boo-boos that I caught in the hardcover version that I had to correct for the paperback version, which was so nice that I could correct them. Um, But I read it again. I read it for the first time since I finished it. And I was struck by... I was struck by how fast it is how fast to read how f- it just went it just goes and then and i'm put
0: downable they call that well
1: i mean <laughs> but you know i i it goes so fast it goes so fast because my life went so fast like yeah. i'm sure i'm sure there were people who read the book you know are like wait he's stopping there like he could have gone on for 10 more pages yeah but i didn't you know like i wanted to kind of have this rhythm of i want to run i don't even have time to think about what this trauma is. I don't have time. I just go. It's part of the power of the book. I think I I think uh, so. Uh, for sure. But yeah. you know, when I when I, I it wasn't until I reread the book that I'm like, okay, I'm proud of this book. Oh. <laughs> <You> know, <because laughs> that, that was like, your first moment. Of that was pride my first of the moment book? of pride that like I did not allow myself Because again, you read so many. Because I read so many books before I started writing. um, Mm -hmm. That just go on and on and just like you know, like they more is just more. It doesn't necessarily mean better. Right. And I wanted to write less and mean more. Mm -hmm. And I think that was actually achieved. So that I'm proud of. I'm proud of that. It has that kind of that kind of velocity um, and that kind of you know it, it it it's brevity, which is hard to strive for. It is. Yeah.
0: It is. I think that there's a real understanding in the world that a big tome is, you know, a, a more important book.
1: Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> and this is a significant book in terms of length, but every chapter, it does, it goes at this clip. It talks yeah. about your childhood and your early adulthood and the things that were happening to you almost faster than you could yourself comprehend them. You know, I, there
1: was a sign, there was a line where, you know, I could, I chewed, I, am um, I swallowed American culture before I learned how to chew it,
2: Uh
1: right? Like that song, by the way, that you just played in the beginning. So that is a song that I saw on PBS because I watch PBS so I could learn how Bill Moyers talks. (laughs) Um, I was watching PBS and there was this woman singing the song. And then I remember she introduced the song and she said it was a poem by James Baldwin. And that's how I got to meet James Baldwin because wow. i'm like who the hell is james baldwin <laughs> right you had to learn i was yeah. a junior in high school i think uh-huh. um i had read the bluest eye in eighth grade but you know i didn't put the two together that morrison and baldwin and maya angelou were all kind of in the same kind of groups of like writers right in terms of they're organized what did you
0: call them in the book your trifecta of my, tr- your... <laughs> my
1: holy trinity <laughs> okay. actually i have a room in my house uh-huh. now um i have a room in my house and where there's portraits of the three of them. And I imagine them talking to each other.
0: Oh, that's that's a good
1: thought. <laughs> and yeah. then saying like, Jose, you know, Maya Angelou saying, when people show you who they are, believe them.
2: <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: Morrison, if you surrender to the air, you can write it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And then Baldwin always saying... Oh, did you really need to do that? Did you really need to? Do I'm so that? glad those
0: three are in conversation
1: with yeah, you in your home. are com- my. I imagine them and telling me, head. telling me, why are you doing that? Who are you doing that for? You know, like they're they're such humanists in the best possible way. I think mm-hmm. as writers, um, yeah.
0: I'm envisioning that as uh, family portraits in your <laughs> in your home. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, thank you for telling us about the Audrey McDonald yeah. intro. You chose some other songs for yeah the rest songs of our that hour I listened together. a lot
1: to when I was writing the book.
0: Is that how you chose? Oh them? yeah, mm-hmm. yep. I think in a moment we're going to hear Duke Ellington. Do you want to tell us why you chose Duke Ellington?
1: I've always loved Rhapsody in Blue, and because you know, Gershwin wrote it while he was on the train from New York to Boston. I didn't so know that. like. Literally the the industrial age and the clanging and just how melodic the city is. And so, you know, here's Gershwin, right, immigrant Jewish background. And here's Ellington. And I just think it's a perfect marriage of what America strives to be, kind of experimental in the moment, um, infinitely, um, infinitely adaptable. Right? Jazz yes. can be, jazz swallows everything. Yeah. <laughs> it swallows Latin music. It swallows, right? And so, like, so Ellington swallowed Rhapsody in Blue. And I actually think, with all due respect to George Kershwin, I think it's the best version of Rhapsody in
0: Blue. <laughs> well, let's hear it. <laughs> And we're back on The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today. We're speaking to Jose Antonio Vargas, author of Dear America. I want to thank our engineer for today, Reverend Andrew. Thank you for being here, making all the, the music work and the microphones work. Um, Jose, you were talking before the break about your book and about how um, you spent your your life before the book as a journalist telling other people's stories. Yeah. And then you decided to tell yours. I would love to know how you, how that felt. Did that feel sort of great, you know, as a, a chance to finally no, it tell was your awful. story? Or was it a struggle?
1: Yeah, I, It I was wonder. really awful. What was it awful was, about it? Because I had to basically unlearn a lot of, a lot of my own practice, right? That Which distance. Is, yeah, that kind of distance. And mm-hmm. even in the book when I reread it, because that's the thing, you know, a book is supposed to capture a moment, right? And you could tell that it is a journalist trying to make sense of his life. Uh-huh. There's this kind of intimate distance in the book yeah. um, that I didn't know it had until I read it. But then I was like, oh yeah, this is a work of a journalist who's trying to figure out how to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Because those are two different things. like Definitely. Jur- right? And And uh, so... It was hard to do it at the moment and really push myself to not not do my usual kind of, you know, um, not fall into the usual tropes, which is like means, for example, let me give you an example. So like the beginning of the book, when, you know, I wake up, I wake up one morning, my suitcase was packed in the Philippines. I was 12. There was no time to shower. My mom says we're going to the airport. I get to the airport, off I went. The journalist Jose had a version of that that was like, "What was going on in the Philippine economy?" Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> I, I I gave it kind of context, and I wanted it to, I wanted it to give it kind of scope. But it, that's not how I experienced it. I woke no. up. As a twelve-year-old, I don't remember kissing her. Did we kiss each other? What did we say, right? And so, and then I remembered in the book, you know, the water. That was the first, the first kind of unforgettable memory. Was it was my first time being on the airplane. The airplane was going up, and I looked down, and all I see is water. And that's when I realized where I come from. I come from a country of water, right? It's it's an archipelago, seven thousand seven islands. I didn't know what that meant until I was up in the sky. So that's what I that's what I remembered. And then this idea, of course, of borders and water. How do you put borders in water? Hmm. Like I live in Berkeley now, as I said, and you know I have a view of the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. And that's the Pacific Ocean, the same ocean that my mom probably sees when she's in the she's in the Philippines. And we haven't seen each other for 27 years almost now. And yet we share this water, but we don't. Right. <laughs> right so it's a border too. It's a border and yeah. I um but can you put borders in water? Isn't not it, it supposed, to be, isn't, it supposed be
0: fluid? isn't it supposed to be it's a, a way to get to get ba- from one place to another? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right? What if what what if boats were not invented? would Magellan have gone to the yeah. Philippines with Columbus had gotten lost and called a bunch of people indians cuz you know he was lost <laughs> right so you know so like yeah. all of that and yeah. so but i mean as a writer i wanted to say i wanted to be more evocative the journalist in me wanted to give you more so that was when i could see like that was for me like a difference or even writing about my emotions which i I still have a problem (laughs) with doing. Um,
0: It's radio, but I wish people could see your face. When you said writing about your emotions, you made a grimace. Because how
1: do you just not overdo it? Yeah. How do you just Did you write it twice?
0: I wonder Oh my God,
1: four times. Yeah, or 400 probably. I know drafts are upon drafts. And you just keep cutting and cutting and cutting. You know, I had read Home. One of the last books I read before I started writing was Home, Toni Morrison's Mm -hmm. book about the 1950s. And this is, I guess, Toni Morrison's period of she was writing less Mm -hmm. and saying more. Mm -hmm. And so that was part of the inspiration too because I was like, well, she put a lot in that thing with little. And I noticed too part of the beauty of that book. I don't know if you know about that book. Um, It's Frank Money, right? It's this um, veteran who fought in the Korean War, the Forgotten War. And he comes home. And here he is in the 1950s, facing discrimination. Although he fought for America, so and Morrison, I guess, wanted to challenge this notion of the 50s as the golden era, post-war, post. And then when you read the book, you started to realize that Morrison doesn't use color until the very last pages. Like uh. he, she did not dis- use color to describe anything. And then when, when When money, when the character gets home, that's when everything becomes colorful and the palette expands. So that, right? You know, but but, uh, she said a lot with by saying little, and so that I guess for me that was I was aiming for something like that. I probably didn't, of course. I mean, you know, Tony Morrison is Tony Morrison, but I'm just I was really trying to push myself to. I was trying to push myself you know, my editor called it concentrated orange juice, just to like mm-hmm. really concentrate it. Yeah.
0: Just get rid of what you don't need. What in I don't need.
1: And I didn't need a lot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, your story, your story itself is powerful and you tell it. It's in complicated. A, it, it's complicated too, but it, you tell it in a, in a compelling way. And I think one of the things that I was su- surprised, by I mean, naively, I think I was expecting to get Uh, I was expecting the book to have a little bit of a catch-up course on immigration policy. Like I I was expecting a little more of that. And what I – instead, I feel like I met you, you know, and that's –
1: So there was a whole chapter in this when I got arrested um, at the border when Obama was president. Um, I think it's called The Machine where Mm -hmm. I explain kind of how this detention machine gets started. Mm -hmm. See, the old – The the, journalist. The the (laughs) journalist me that could have been the entire book. Yeah, It would have been the cover story for the... That is a separate book. It could have been like a cover story for the Atlantic and I could have just made it this entire thing. But I just wanted it to... That's why it was therapy because, you know, writing is a very... It's the most solitary thing anybody can do,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know? And again, I've made four documentaries, which is a very... Filmmaking is inherently collaborative. Mm -hmm. It's social, you know? Um, Writing is lonely and... It wasn't until I wrote the book that I really made sense of not only me, but where do I fit in all of this, right? Like, where, you know, I'm not Mexican. in an issue mm-hmm. that is so associated with Mexican and Latinx people in general, right? Certainly. Um, I am not—some people would say that I don't represent kind of, you know, in the book, one of the things I did was included some of the— criticism i was getting from people right mm-hmm. and you know an immigration activist in chicago was like you're too successful you can't represent mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. right that was really hard to write about and to even divulge that because i remember there was versions of the book where i didn't want to do that i didn't want to like say that you know, I was getting pulled not only from the right, like from people who want me deported and who sends me a bunch of hate mail, yeah. but I, also I was getting pressure from the left because they didn't know what to do with somebody who doesn't fit the quote-unquote profile.
0: Well, that's what I mean about the book. There's a stark vulnerability about much of the book that yeah. I think is so beautiful. And it's oh. unexpected. I mean, for me, it was unexpected. Even someone who sort of knew... You yeah, know, what, what you were aiming for with the book and what the book might but, be. But you know, if I didn't do that, then what would be the point?
1: Yeah, right. Like, I, what would be the point? I mean, it was it was the kind of emotional nakedness that I think I you know because again, the book tells you what it needs to be. You, you right? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. you have you know I'm an outline person, so I outline everything. i like, but then it doesn't. You know, like when I I did like one whole chapter on immigration history and it just didn't it, it it ruined the momentum of the book right yeah. like it comes it was like a hard stop and i was uh-huh. like wait the, the it has to keep moving it has to have momentum mm-hmm. you know so and
0: yeah. therefore what com- what comes out is a portrait of you and i yeah. i feel like i read in the book you can correct me if i understood this wrong but i i feel like i felt you bristling at the <sighs> notion that you were representing oh, others Others who are undocumented people, others who are gay, Filipino, gay, yeah. you don't seem to have any interest in representing a broader audience and you shouldn't have to.
1: But that's, you know, <laughs> why, why was I able to say that? Because I was really lucky that I read Baldwin as early as I did, uh-huh. you know, like James Baldwin, man. I mean, what did he say? He was like, he was a curse to both houses. Because black people didn't know what to do with him. White people didn't know what to do with him, right? Like like we think of Baldwin now as his revered, you know, really prescient person, public figure, intellectual, all that. But I had forgotten until Cornell West, you know, gave this thing and I was like, oh, my God. I had forgotten how hated Baldwin was by some people, that people thought that he – was talking to that, that 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 he was trying to talk to white people too much <laughs> right and if the jewish intelligentsia in new york didn't support him what would have happened right and i forgot i didn't know about that and but baldwin stuck to his you know he was so himself because that was the only way to be yeah um so uh, you know it's interesting like you read these writers that become parts of your life and then you start realizing that you have actually internalize their lives and it helps you guide yours their perspectives become yours it's become its own kind of passport yeah it becomes its own kind of permission to to be who you are based on what you've learned from them yeah i've never clearly i've never met them you know um but yeah so
0: well, it seems like the writing of the book, as you were saying before, um, in this solitary process, much more so than probably your other work,
1: journalism, oh, yeah. filmmaking, totally. the
2: non-profit. Journalism, you talk to
1: everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you talk, you're just <laughs> you talking. Talk to, you talk to everybody. I mean, actually, my problem was I talked to everybody, and then I would sit back with like 10,000 words of notes and synthesize. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: how is that... How is that different for you? Was that a comfortable place? Oh, it was awful. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It was awful. It was literally, and you know, I didn't have a place. So I wrote the book literally while I was like living in Airbnbs Hmm. and um, on flights. Actually, the longest parts of the book is when I was on planes. Like I wrote them while I was on an airplane flying from the East Coast to the West Coast or West Coast to the East Mm -hmm. Coast. Um, So that it made it hard, but it also gave the book again, this kind of, itinerant quality it's it does. kind of it it's moving it's moving right that's
0: like it, that's an interesting window yeah. into, into the, the shortness of the chapters and yep. the so the velocity
1: yeah and so that's why but i love though that i can look back at it and be like oh yeah that's i wrote i literally wrote that chapter at the starbucks in milwaukee <laughs> <laughs> Right, It was open till midnight and I was really struggling with this thing. And, uh-huh. you know, so I could actually tell where I was, wherever I wrote the book, wherever I wrote the chapter in the book.
0: When we come back from the next break, I want to talk about that notion of home and homelessness, yeah. which you, you reference a lot and you just did. I didn't realize you were in Airbnbs as yeah. much as, yeah, I was. As, as you were and on flights. yeah. Um, and I hope that you'll also read something for us yeah. when we come back from the break. But first we have uh, Stephen Sondheim song that you ch- that you selected right yes yes this is,
1: right. A, this is a hard one
2: mother cannot guide you now you're on your own only me beside you still you
0: We're back with Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're here with Jose Antonio Vargas, author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Uh, Thanks for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. um, We were saying before that you're um, you're here because this is like an all-community read this winter. And tonight you're going to give a talk to... Many of us locals. And I have no <laughs> idea what I'm about to say. But I guess okay. I'll figure that yeah. Out. Yes, yeah. you will. You will. Um, and so, are you going to? Would you like to read something for
1: next? By the way, this is the first. I've done lots of interviews, but this uh-huh. is the first one where you asked me what songs or what pieces of music I was listening to or something. So, so that song is, you know, it's from a musical called Into the Woods, mm-hmm. by Stephen Sondheim. Uh, it got turned into a movie. Um, I think a, a few years ago but i was i think in i was a freshman or a sophomore in high school when i saw when i picked up the cd of that song of that song at the public library and you know i had just found out that i was here illegally um you know because i went to the dmv and figured out and found out that the green card that my grandfather gave me was fake um, and then I also knew that I was gay. And, you know, this was before social media, before you could look for people, right? I mean, I, what wait a second. Even if I had people to look for, I didn't know what, what would I have said? I don't know. Hmm. So, and then you're listening and apparently this musical, I hadn't seen it, was about fairy tales. So I picked it up and I listened and this is one of the songs. And the first line is, mother cannot guide you. Mm -hmm. Right? Now you're all alone, only me beside you, still you're not alone. And then actually towards the end, um, part of it is the song goes, people make mistakes. Fathers, mothers, people make mistakes, holding to their own, thinking they're alone, honor their mistakes, everybody makes. One another's terrible mistakes, witches can be right, giants can be good. So. It was, um, you know, words are important, and it was a very powerful moment. And again, what would an undocumented gay Filipino, I mean, that's the power of art, right? And I guess the power of art is to make you feel less alone. But at that moment, like this this song, and I don't know who Sondheim was, who knew, you know? Mm-hmm. But this idea that this person was telling me that no one was alone was pivotal for me, right? Even though clearly now I know everything about Steven Sondheim. <laughs> we come from different backgrounds, all of that. Um, and actually that, that song is related to this thing I'm about to read. Oh, good. Which is the shortest chapter in the book that I rewrote. I don't know how many times uh-huh. and it's called strangers and it's inspired by that song. <laughs> oh, um, okay. So this is how it goes. Um, there is no passing alone at every challenging, complicated and complicating juncture of my life, getting to college, getting a job, getting a driver's license so i could get, so I could have a valid proof of identification so I could get a job, keeping the job. A stranger who did not remain a stranger saved me. I use that word deliberately because that's what each of them did, even if they didn't know what they were doing. Saved. They saved me. After telling me that my green card was fake, the curly haired, bespectacled woman at the DMV could have called immigration officials. After finding out that I was ineligible for financial aid because I don't have any legal papers, the administrators, teachers, and parents at Mountain View High School didn't need to help me. I didn't even ask for help because I didn't know how to. But they offered help even when I didn't know what kind of help I needed even when they didn't know what they were doing. After discovering that I was ineligible for a summer internship, the recruiter could have reported me to somebody. After I confessed about the fake papers, the doctor's social security card, the driver's license I wasn't supposed to have, the senior newsroom personnel could have dragged me to the Office of Human Resources and gotten me fired. I don't know why they did what they did. But I know for sure that all these Americans, all these strangers all across the country have allowed people like me to pass.
0: The book reads in some places as a real celebration and a tribute to <sighs> Americans who are part of this community that you've built for 27 years that you've been here. And to me,
1: they're what's missing in the conversation.
0: Absolutely. We don't hear about them.
1: You're so right. Like, it's almost as if these undocumented people are islands onto themselves, as if speaking of
0: loneliness. Right. As if yeah. they're
1: just as if they're just off somewhere, right? And and we're not and, and we're not parts of these communities that, that we don't know the teachers and the pastors and the business owners and, and the, the friends, and the, friends and, the and the librarians and the and so that I mean clearly, you know, I was taking my life and making it bigger than just one person. But for me that was a real goal because I wanted to I wanted to honor them right and and to me even calling it strangers and you know mm-hmm. that chapter preceded a chapter called breaking the law because they helped me break the law whatever that law is whatever that law is right yeah. like every at every point when there was a question about should I get this driver's license like am I allowed to do this or should I keep lying to the Washington Post? <laughs> they made a cautious effort to say yes. Yeah. And so 11 million people could not exist in a country if people don't let them be people. Right. So where are they? Why are they not a part of the conversation? Why? So to me, that's been a question that I've been asking now for almost a decade. And I think as a journalist, it pains me because we're not telling those stories
0: no, we're not. we're not. You mentioned in the book um, that of your family that's yeah. here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. You are the only one I'm without... the only one
1: out of 34 in the Bay Area. Yeah. I have 34, you know, Filipinos, in case you're wondering. By the way, there's a lot of Filipinos here in Ann Arbor. Getting, Is that right? Because they're texting- they're, they're texting you? They're tweeting <laughs> at me saying, we're coming tonight. I'm like, oh, great. Cool. Bring some adobo. <laughs> um, so- there are about 4 million Filipinos in the United States, uh-huh. 2 million in California alone. Uh-huh. We're the largest Asian group in California, mm-hmm. more than Chinese, more than Indians, which is interesting. I did not know that. So, yeah. So out of those 2 million, 34 of them are my relatives. Yeah. So how but many- all of them, yeah. But all of them have papers. Right. So they're either born here, so they're, you know, birthright citizenship, or naturalized, like my grandparents, mm-hmm. or green card holders. Mm-hmm.
0: And so how do we – there's so much misinformation. One of the anecdotes from the book that I, um, I'll i go back to yeah. again and again is you were on a TV program and the after reception, the host said to you, why
1: don't you fix it?
0: Or, so, I'm paraphrasing. Erin
1: Burnett? Yeah. I I think she didn't like that I put that in. Oh. Um, I, I wasn't just, even going to mention the name. But oh, well, anyway. I mean, there you go. Hi, Erin. <laughs> <laughs> But I was so struck by it. It was like, you know, Erin is incredibly smart. Of course she of is, course. right? By yes. the way, anybody who does live TV, like, I'm 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 not sure I could Our hats are could to that. I am just them. not sure I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um it's a whole different kind of thing. But yeah, I was so struck and Bill Maher.
0: That's who I was actually thinking of. Yes. Bill, Bill Maher. Bill Maher
1: was like So people who are informed, who are who are educated, down, who are progressive, who are who, who yeah. sympathize, who want empathy, right? Nope. It's, it's incredible, Wh- really. Why
0: do do people still hold those views, and how do we change it?
1: This is do why, you know? to me, storytelling has to be uh-huh. central in this conversation, uh-huh. because we are literally creating policies, and we are being governed by misinformation. Uh-huh. So if the American public knew, for example, that 40% of the undocumented population overstayed their visa and they didn't cross a border, would we spend all that money at the border? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make So yeah. public charge... Right. So now if you have a possibility of of actually, you know, being here legally but relying on government assistance, now they may deprive you from a green card, right? If the public knew that immigrants in this country, documented and undocumented, contribute billions of dollars to the economy, right? Would we be so threatened? But it doesn't fit the narrative. Right. So you have this news media that whenever they write about immigration, they only focus it for the most part on politics and policies and never on processes. Never on humans. Never on humans that have to go through a process. So something as basic, which is that why don't you just get legal? Take care of it. It's a process question. (laughs) So then as a journalist, the question ought to be why can't you – Yeah. What are those barriers? What are those barriers? How did it happen? What did Clinton do? What did Bush do? What did Obama do? How did that lead to Trump? You know, again, later on in life, years and years from now, I'm going to be proud of the fact that I did not succumb to the Trumpian, you know, this book would have been more popular if I had called it Dear Trump and Mm -hmm. just basically attacked every single Trump's immigration policy. Yeah. Yeah. But it it would have been intellectually dishonest because his policies are connected to the policies of Clinton and Bush and Obama. It Mm -hmm. didn't happen overnight. We didn't just started caging kids. You know, I mean, so what are we doing? So there's the journalist part of me, which is part of my DNA, that is embarrassed and frustrated by, you know, look, like journalism is under attack. And yet in the very same vein, their journalism is hurting us because it's not telling us um, really the full story.
0: Having worked in newsrooms, as you have, yeah. can you can you talk about why? I mean, is it all mm. systemic racism that is I mean, is is a, that it? A or? lot
1: of it is because also the rise of the digital age also brought us you know the death of local journalists. There used to be. Immigration reporters and most big. Uh,
0: let's talk about local journalism, uh, yeah. which is. <laughs> I just got a stomachache. Yeah, you're huge, right.
1: Huge. They used to be actually reporters. You know, this country has added. There are 45 million immigrants in the country today. 45 mm-hmm. million, 11 million of whom are undocumented. Mm-hmm. Those 45 million will constitute 88 percent of the total population growth in the next 50 years. Wow. That is not an immigration reform story that is an American story. That's America. That's us. So that's Michigan, that's and it's not California, it's not New York, it's Michigan, it's Wisconsin, it's mm-hmm. Ohio, mm-hmm. it's Georgia that added what, a million new people in the past decade, mostly immigrants. So the death of local journalism and people having journalists having beats to cover people as people has contributed to a lot of this. And then in journalism, People think of this as an issue, so therefore issues have two equal sides, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, at, so at Define American, you know, our, our, our news media work, a lot of it is really challenging kind of this, you know, uh, th- this idea that whenever you quote people who are trying to restrict immigration to this country, for the most part, news organizations are not actually providing context. So wait, so um, Fair Fair or Numbers to USA or... Um, um, Center for Immigration Studies, those are the top three, all of whom were founded by John Tanton, a guy who was a white nationalist. Why can't we just say that? Yeah. <laughs> Instead, the, the the shorthand is, you know, who which 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 uh promotes stricter immigration limits? No, that's a different thing. Journalistically irresponsible.
0: Very different. And if thing. the
1: New York Times is doing that
0: and the Washington Post. Center for Immigration Studies is quoted all the time. All,
1: NPR, all the time.
2: NPR. <laughs>
1: and it's, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, and and, and marginalized. And, and, yeah. and of course, and when I say this, you know, people in my, some some of my colleagues in journalism will Jose, you have an agenda. Yes, I do have an agenda. I have an agenda for factual, contextualized information. Mm-hmm. That's where I have an agenda for. Mm-hmm. Just because it's personal to me doesn't mean I'm not disciplined enough to have objectivity. No, no. that's just, that's to me is just, you know insulting. Yeah. Um,
0: Jose Antonio Vargas, you are author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Thank you for sharing all your perspectives on this Yeah, with us thank today. you for having me. I want to talk a little bit about um, tonight. I know you're still writing your speech, so I'm yeah. not going to make you write your speech on the spot here. Um, but you do have, today, now, you have a community of people who've read the book. Yeah. And I know you've been out, you, the book came out a year and a half ago or so, so you have you've been talking about your story and this book out in the world for some time now I know on TV, on TV and, and I'm
1: so ready and to in just the like, world and that my next projects now are like have nothing to do with me which I'm so looking forward to
0: <laughs> I want to ask you about your next projects <laughs> yeah but I first want to ask how people are receiving the book I, I imagine oh. that 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 many people are receiving it warmly but but not everyone is right not every well i mean i it, again i try every, not to everyone... i try not to read
1: this stuff but yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah but to me the best part of the are the students cuz yeah. it's gotten assigned to so many yeah. like um, louisiana state all um the freshmen at louisiana state university had to read the book uh-huh. in baton rouge wow so it was a lot of books so they're like you have to go there and talk to the kids <laughs> so i did i went last yeah. fall no uh, was it last fall yeah when school started and You know, mostly conservative school, mostly white. And you could tell. They had to read it. And so when I met them, everybody had read it. And you could tell that something shifted in their head, Mm -hmm. that they just couldn't believe that why didn't they know any of this, right? And a lot of them grew up in Louisiana or in the South. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them grew up watching Fox News. Or there was this young woman who said every birthday was a Rush Limbaugh book. <laughs> from From the grandpa, yeah, right,, wow. and so they have been kind of conditioned to think a certain sure. way, and so I challenged a lot of that, and I just love that I love that students because I remember you know i'm a, I am I'm a I guess a perpetual student, but education is sacred to me, and I, I just love the fact that students are grappling with it and are yeah. actually engaging with the text and the best part. Is that it's not? I thought the book would be, oh, you know, immigration studies, Asian American studies, because, you know, I'm Filipino. Um, no, they're teaching it in English courses. They're teaching it in history courses. So that's really great. I just, I, I love that.
0: Do you think the book, you know, what I was referring to before is an anecdote in the book about someone who approached you on an airplane who had heard oh, your story, thought, yeah. thought he understood and knew your story. Yeah, 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 yeah. From TV. From, from TV, from
2: Vox, yeah. actually. Yeah.
0: And um, do you think that? When people read the book they that uh, their opinions evolve have you Have you seen that in their reaction?
1: Yes, although that's not uh, it would have been too much of a burden to carry to make that like a goal for the me. point I yeah. did not you know yeah. I just wanted to write a it wouldn't book. have been a very good book if you were trying good.
0: to hit people no. with, <laughs> with, with that it. for
1: um, three hundred pages but it's been really it's what I like about it is people are understanding. I understand the issue from a really human perspective Mm -hmm. that it's not that it's complex and it, and it, and it kind of, it, it, um, it garners complex emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a, I had a woman write me saying, I cannot, I cannot imagine letting my child go. And she said that she judged my mom. Mm. And then I wrote her back and I said, you know, I did that for like 10 years. And uh, one of the things I'm working on now, which will take me forever, is I'm writing – I've never written anything fiction. I'm writing a book on what happens when this mother um lets her son go and imagining it from the perspective of the mother, what happens when – you know, clearly it's inspired by my mom, but, it's, just, mm-hmm. but it, it's inspired by that specific story. But then fictionalizing it and like, where did she go afterwards? After my mom said goodbye and what gave a, me my jacket and said, "Here's yeah. a jacket; it might be cold there." That and was the last did she thing she know said.
0: That you didn't know. I mean, I know. what a powerful way to build empathy for that other. But you know, for me though,
1: I as I'm working on it, and it sucks right now. <laughs> totally sucks. I'm working on it and I'm realizing that it may be it may be the best gift I could give our relationship mm. is to imagine imagine what it took for a woman for a mother to do that how did she justify it what did she say to herself you know uh, I really want cuz I I don't know this by the way so again the journalist me would want to know the facts mm-hmm. and now I want to actually find out some versions of truth right yeah and yeah it is going to be a work of empathy from in many ways for 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 a son to kind of imagine that
0: yeah something else entirely
1: something else entirely
0: this is wcbn fm ann arbor we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with jose antonio vargas
1: Are you familiar with that music?
0: I'm not familiar. Will you talk it's about it's
1: Argentine music? tango? <laughs> and when people you're all over the map, I'm, on all, the music. I'm all over that music. <laughs> it's a, so it's when, everywhere. When it comes to tango, people are always used to like the staccato, aggressive tango. Yeah. So this is more of like legato, kind of it's kind of mournful. Yes. And <laughs> so yeah, the last few chapters of the book was listening to this. Like, uh, <laughs> when you were just, writing the book, oh yeah, I just would blast this out. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really blasting
0: music. Well, I mean, I would, well,
1: but you know, I mean, what was the other music that I, I was into? A lot of Jay Z too, uh-huh. but that's a whole other thing. um uh-huh. So I finished the book at like an Airbnb way up in the Berkeley Hills, where I could not, like, I couldn't, like, I couldn't make excuses. You know, meaning I was way up in the hill. And it took forever to get down. <laughs> you were just—I was just like, "You're stuck. You're stuck up there, writing, right? writing." And that's where I finished the book and mm-hmm. P- Piazzolla, because the last few chapters of the book are very heavy. <laughs> yeah, right. The music's kind of heavy too. Just ex- exactly. But yeah. it's—but this kind of this mournful. But it, again, it moves, right? It's mm-hmm. not—it it all moves. It's dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: It has, you know, one of the one of my favorite parts of the book was reading about your earlier childhood, where you're going to the public library oh, in Mountain View, yeah, and you're sort of consuming oh, U.S. Man.
1: culture in a really oh beautiful. I, I must have way. spent a week trying to figure out what Commentary magazine was. <laughs> I just was like, "What is this magazine?" And then it would be right next to the the New Republic, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, and I didn't understand why we needed all these four magazines i mm-hmm. wasn't one enough mm-hmm. right so no it was it was such an education in kind of media literacy well there's a whole part where you're just digesting you're media just, you're just, you're just <laughs> and you did it, it and at like 12 13 14 and, but things connect yeah. one of the reasons why i love figure skating because you know in the philippines we didn't know what the hell that was but um <laughs> was it was my introduction to classical music yeah because whenever somebody skated you could you know, the thing, the Chiron would say, Rachmaninoff concerto number two. What the hell is that? So you yeah. go to the library. Then you'd go to the library, to the library <laughs> and <find laughs> it. figure it and I'm out. Like, yeah, you know. Did you know that Romeo and Juliet comes in Prokofiev and Chavkovsky? Mm-hmm. I do now (laughs) you do skaters
0: tv and the public library public library thank goodness for public libraries thank goodness for
1: public libraries
0: can you talk about you're the founder of define american yeah and i would love for you to talk a little bit about that work and and what it does and your role in
1: it our work so i knew as a journalist that the moment i publicly out myself that i'm going to become the story right Mm -hmm. That's just what happens right you gravitate towards this thing and then the next day they would all forget (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so they'd focus on my story for a couple of days And then everybody would forget. So I wanted to start an organization that would actually put stories on a larger narrative framework. So at Divine American, what we do is we use stories in all mediums to change the overall narrative on immigration. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do we take this issue out of this box that we have all collectively locked it in? Mm -hmm. Um, So the two biggest part of our work is Hollywood and journalism. So, for example, um, we've consulted on maybe oh, more than 60 television shows. So when you see a TV show and you see, you know, like an undocumented character on *Grace Anatomy or Party of Five, for example, then you reboot of Party of Five on Preform, is uh, an immigrant family. So mm-hmm. we've, we've been working with them, I think, for a few months now. So we get scripts and we look at them. And they we come consult. To you? Yeah. It's become a place, actually, I think, that they actually come to us now. Um, there's Elizabeth... Voorhees um, is that kind of the head of that department and Noel Stewart. And we look at scripts and we consult and I visited a few writers rooms myself. And the first one I did was blind spot in NBC. Mm -hmm. And I guess they wanted to have an undocumented journalist character, which, you know, was great. You can speak to, I can speak to. uh, Yeah. But I remember telling them specifically, can you like, does she have to be Latina? can you make her Asian? Can she be, right? Like, But at this time- And how does
0: that, how do those conversations go?
1: Well, first of all, I think writers' rooms are sacred places. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing we do at Divine American is make sure that we respect Writers want to write. They don't want to be told what to write. Sure. So you just want to kind of be a part, you know, you, have, you want to be a part of this kind of creative space that they've created. Mm-hmm. So it's actually really thrilling. And for us, you know, for me as a gay man, I remembered when Ellen came out, you know, on TV when Will & Grace was the number one show on television and the power of television to humanize people, especially now in the golden age of TV. So to me, this is a big part of our work. And we're reaching millions of people because we are impacting how stories are being told. So that's one part. The other part is journalism. So again, how do we help news organizations better tell the story in all of its complexity and take it out of just the political reportage and make it about process? So those are the two biggest parts of our work. And we also support you know undocumented artists. We support immigrant artists. So again, it's, it's all work. about storytelling. And in some ways, you know, Tony Morrison, who I've mentioned a few times now. You know, I don't have you read she when she won the Nobel for prize for literature, she gave um I guess you have to like give a, a lecture. Did you have you read this? I haven't read the lecture. Oh my god, it's amazing. It's probably the most potent speech ever given about the power of language. And so, you know, she she talks about the fact that Um, One of the quotes in this speech is, narrative is radical, creating us at the very moment it is being created.
2: Mm.
1: Another one, which I find really powerful, we die, that may be the meaning of life, but we do language, that may be the measure of our lives. Mm. So I think the work of my life, wherever I am, is going to be how do we change the language of this issue, a language that arcs towards Actually, people's lives, right, and not towards and facts and, and facts truth. and facts matter, and truth matters, and people yeah. matter. That's a big yeah.
0: sort of underpinning of the define American words. Yes. yes, is that those words matter,
1: and that you know, I I made a living, <laughs> I made a living asking questions, and yeah. I cannot think of a more important question in our country right now than how do you define what and who an American is. I think that's a question that should bind us all together, no matter where we come from, no matter where we live in the country.
0: I often ask, as we close the show, I ask writers to give advice for aspiring writers. (laughs) And I wonder if you, I mean, you can answer that question if if you like, but I also wonder if you um, want to provide advice for People that are having this conversation, that are trying to define American for ah. themselves or who are wondering, or who don't know about your work and your story yet.
1: Well, to me, what's dangerous about the time we're living in is it's almost as if there's no room for nuance, right? Hmm. Everything is so black or white or this or that or it's polarized. That uh, That's why, to me, stories may be the only place where nuance has to and must exist so whenever you're having an argument with somebody about immigration or whatever and you know facts are not getting to them go to a story hey did you hear about this person did you hear about this did you so at define american go to our website we actually have this thing called the gift guide to uncomfortable conversations (laughs) okay (laughs) you can download a pdf very nice pdf and Mm -hmm. it actually tells you okay when somebody says this what can you say so that's genius engage right tell stories like if you're not going to get to your grandfather who will sean hannity if you're going (laughs) to talk to your mom who's going to get to her like the fact that people now are more comfortable calling people out on twitter and not dealing with their own family members go get your mom
0: (laughs) get Get your uncle
1: (laughs) right so i think that's really important so check out the website we have so many resources for you to to kind of be able to use as for advice um i think writing and writing and reading are the same thing and so i'm always amazed when i meet young writers who don't read enough
2: Mm -hmm.
1: like i don't i mean for me part of the paralysis of writing a book is that I just wasn't sure I had enough words, hmm. <laughs> you know. Like I still think in Tagalog, you know. Like I still think in my native language, and like English is my second language, and so Tagalog doesn't really translate like, to English. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like right now I'm getting into Balzac. I never really read Balzac, okay. so now I'm getting into that. I'm rereading a lot of I'm rereading a lot of Virginia Woolf, because um, Mrs. Dalloway, you know. I'm actually okay. using that as an inspiration for this thing that i 'm working on in a mom, really, so yeah. she drops off her son at the airport, and then what happens to her day? yeah, right, like where does she go? What does she think? you know that is very
0: Mrs. Dalloway.
1: yeah Mrs. Yeah. Dalloway said she would like to buy the flowers herself <laughs> <laughs> great um so yeah, so like i am i am your advice is read read everything keep reading everything yeah. Stephen Sondheim has a great book called Finishing the Hat he literally explains the lyrics to you <laughs> like how why did he choose that and why music is different from poetry why poetry is different from lyrics and music isn't that I think it's to me reading has to be fundamental
0: thank you Jose Antonio Vargas you are author of Dear America Notes of an Undocumented Citizen we're so glad you joined us on Living Writers today thank you for having me thank you
2: This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We're airing selected hours from our extensive broadcast archive and new live and pre-recorded shows during the current emergency. Check our schedule at WCBN.org. Your hands and clean your fingernails. <laughs> Wash
0: your hands and clean your fingernails.
2: Melda, your must move. Wash your hands and clean your fingernails.